Welcome to another episode of the WBT, Wrath Bearing Trees podcast. The co-hosts today are myself, Adrian Bonnenberger, and Mike Carson. We're joined by uh, a really terrific guest who is uh, an accomplished podcaster in his own right, Patrick Wyman, the host of the Fall of Rome and Tides of History podcast, history PhD, one-time MMA freelance journalist, and most recently debut author of an incredible book, The Verge. Patrick, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Originally, the plan was to talk about The Verge, but because of the fall of Kabul today and therefore Afghanistan, we're going to get into that a little bit too. Nobody better to talk about that than Patrick because of his work in the, in the area. The first question I had about The Verge was the book and much of your work on the Fall of Roman Tides of History podcast seem focused on moments that illustrate institutional change. Can you say more about broadly what you think of how systems or processes evolve through history and why The Verge focuses on the historical period it does? Yeah, so I think the, f the first thing is that we have to view history as being punctuated, right? It's not that things are happening continuously at the same rate of change all the time. There are periods that can last quite long of, of relative stability there. And then there are periods of extremely rapid change. And, you know, different fields have different names for these. Um, political scientists tend to call them critical junctures. Um, social scientists in general tend to call them critical junctures where um, essentially for for whatever reason, you enter a period of chaos or rapid change. And, you know, we think of World War II as being one of those periods where you can have social orders and, uh, and political systems that have been around for a very long time. And over the course of a few years, they can be upended. That's a really dramatic example. But critical junctures are kind of spread um, at various points throughout the past few centuries. And, you know, it, it's on the one hand, Acknowledging the importance of those periods of time is almost a, a way of throwing back to an older way of doing history when you thought really hard about like turning points and, uh, and, and you know, uh, like personal agency, because um, when you compress a lot of change into short periods of time, individual personalities and ways of doing things can um, can play a significant role. You don't have to like veer into great man history where, you know, everything's driven forward by the, the will of a, a powerful person, but acknowledging that there's a, that, that a critical juncture can be the meeting point between some really contingent circumstances, um, things that things that have come into being by accident or as one of a number of, of possibilities, the force of some individual people's personalities, plus these much longer, longer term bubbling structural processes working under the surface. And I thought that those things all came together very neatly in this period from about 1490 to 1530. You can see these long term shifts that have been happening for a really long time, stretching back into the Middle Ages. But then you can also see some some real inciting events, some real triggering things that happen early in the 1490s that set the groundwork for a period of just tremendous change. And, you know, you think about somebody who's who's born in the 1470s, who's an adult watching things happen in the 1490s, and that over the course of their life, they're going to see armies increase in size by many times over. They're going to see the, the uh, identification of the Americas, um, and not just expeditions going out, but the conquest of the New World Empires, the, uh, the creation of whole new colonial societies, uh, the circum a circumnavigation of the globe, um, a change in the global trading system. Um, all of those things are going to happen in this one individual's lifetime. And I thought 
that looked at from that perspective, there were both questions and problems to be explained and also stories to tell. And so that's why I tried to focus on on this particular period. I thought it was a way of getting at something deep about how history works and how how causality works over time, uh, and also a way of digging into just a fascinating series of people, places, and happenings. An excerpt of The Verge was published recently in Defector on Goetz von Help me God. Verlichingen. <laughs> the man with the iron fist. The chapter talks about a transition away from pre-modern styles of warfare and toward modern warfare. Uh, what were some of the big changes that characterized that period when it came to warfare and how were those changes encapsulated? The one that we think of um, as belonging to that period is really the shift toward the mass use of gunpowder, um, that, that gunpowder becomes the defining feature of battlefields in this period. And that's true. That's absolutely a part of it. Um, but gunpowder had been around for a while. Gunpowder had been around going back even into the 14th century. There were cannons on the battlefield at Clécy in 1346 when, uh, when English longbowmen cut down French knights. There were cannon on that battlefield. Um, Henry V used cannon to knock down walls in Normandy. Um, the final English defeat in the Hundred Years' War in 1453 happened on a battlefield with a bunch of cannon on it. Um, same with the knocking down of the walls of Constantinople that same year. So it's not like gunpowder was, was itself a new thing. What changed was the way in which it was utilized on the battlefield in conjunction with other, other styles and forms of warfare and other organizational styles and the scale. That's the big thing that changes in this period is, you know, Medieval armies had been fairly small um, because armies were expensive and hard to control and the resources of states were not sufficient to put huge numbers of, of troops into the field. What changes in this period is all of a sudden you have armies that look like the armies that we see several centuries later in size. In terms of the length of conflicts, the ability to put those armies into the field, at least theoretically pay them and supply them. War in this period, even if the technological change might be overstated, the change in scale, logistics, and kind of strategic scope is much more along the lines of what we would expect from warfare several centuries down the line rather than medieval conflicts. Sort of a good segue into talking about Afghanistan in part because what you say about gunpowder, especially, I think there's this desire uh, perhaps because of strategy games like Civilization, to think of like military breakthroughs being connected to a technology. And while there's a connection, it's it's not like you were saying necessarily causal. It's more about like the, the systemic way of, of applying the technology. So what, one of the big conversations around Afghanistan now is, was, you know, up until a couple of weeks ago, the United States should continue uh, supporting the ANSF with airstrikes. Airstrikes mm -hmm. being sort of like one of America's favorite technological, like this will fix every problem. Going back to World War II, uh, and, and, and it, it has a very spotty record of fixing any problems, to be frank. Um, although in, 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 in real terms, I would say, you know, air, tactical airstrikes in this particular case, like the, those tend to be fairly effective, at least as, as, as far as I saw. Um, so here we are with, um, you know, today the, the episode is being recorded the same day as, as Kabul fell and Afghanistan, the Afghanistan that I deployed to twice no longer exists. It is now in Afghanistan that is led by, ruled by uh, the Taliban. Their vision for Afghanistan is very different from the, the Afghanistan I was in. It seems especially appropriate to talk about a, a very unusual spectacle, which is a pre-modern army having just met a, an ostensibly modern army and absolutely washed them. What are your thoughts about that dynamic? 
for me, the biggest piece comes back to the connection between the broader structures of society, the goals of individual groups within society, and the connection between those and the the application of force in in a military context. That like these, um, it, it's not just about technology. It's not about it's not just about who's got more and better guns or, or better tanks or airplanes or the ability to call in um, airstrikes or drone strikes or anything like that. That you can't build the state structures that that support a modern military that's equipped with modern technology um, overnight or even in the course of 20 years. I mean, it's like the, I I was thinking about this before we talked today. And I think the, the best analogy that I can come up with is that like, it's like trying to use a chainsaw to carve an ice sculpture out of an iceberg, right? Like you can do a lot to to change the shape of that iceberg above water, but 90% of the iceberg is still underwater. And what we see on the surface is ultimately going to be a reflection of these much deeper ways of organizing society and ways of organizing society in in Afghanistan in a in a patchwork fragmented tribalized place where uh, a kind of a national identity is not is not a given it's not as simple as just giving people guns and teaching them how to fight if there's all of this other stuff going on there, a lot of it being stuff that's, I don't know. And I mean, I think you guys can probably speak to this a lot more than I can that just kind of, I don't feel like we in the United States ever really came to terms with what Afghanistan was, how Afghan society functioned, who the various interest groups were, what their incentives were and what, and what they wanted and how that might have fit with our sense of how a modern state is supposed to operate and what we were trying to do there. I think you're also, worth noting is like we never like we never had a clear idea i mean along with what they are about what we wanted from the situation i mean i loved your book patrick i mean the verge is thinking about the how you talked with the military generally and you use the word like pre-modern adrian and but i'm not like you said patrick a couple times like something along the lines that war had a logic and reason all its own and you kind of insist about it's not something that like they were reluctant in any way to do is something that they were, were was part of something they were supposed to do, inclined to do, it wouldn't, if they had nothing else to do, they would create wars. Um, And that was just a given, right? And I guess, I know this is kind of big jumps to the now to the then, but I mean, um, do you see anything, to me, I'm always wrestling with it, is is it still the same in some ways? Are we still wrestling with our relationship to what war is? Um, And is that in any way, could you connect that to Afghanistan to be interested to the the current problems? There's an extent to which the military is the best functioning part of the 21st century American state with all of the issues organizationally with the, with the 21st century American military. It's one of the very few areas that is not short of resources, at least in dollar terms, Um, how those dollars are being spent, what they're being used for, whether they're being used effectively or efficiently is a, a whole series of other questions. But there's an extent to which when you, when the United States gives that money to the military in order to use it as a multi-purpose tool instead of a hammer. And so I think that as a society, a, a nation, the military is something that, that we look to to solve our problems in ways that it's not designed or, or necessarily capable of doing. And building a state in Afghanistan is is probably one of those things that that's, you know, there's an extent to which that's a job for anthropologists and political scientists and region specialists. And uh, and like trying to make that a military project is in, is in some way, shape or form missing the point of what a military can do and is and maybe is supposed to do and uh, but 
if all we know how to do is swing the hammer because that's where our resources have gone and our arms gotten real strong and good at swinging the hammer, that's kind of what you default to. So yeah, I mean, I think that's it's kind it's kind of culturally baked into our foreign policy apparatus and and our way of understanding what the United States is that as much as is controversial or unagreed in American society, the idea that the military is still a focus for American identity um, is still is still present. The hardest thing for me recently has been looking at what I thought was the structure of Afghanistan, understanding that I saw mostly the army on my first deployment and the police on my second deployment. And I, I had limited access to the Afghanistan that was being lived village to village and even city to city. But it seemed to me like things were working like a local level at like a platoon or a company level or a battalion level. They, they always had trouble with logistics. And when people talk about how the US military tried to make itself replicate itself in Afghanistan, and one of the reasons that the Afghans were failed, the ANSF failed, was because they were trying to, they were trying to be a modern, or a modern military without modern resources. It's just so amazing to me that like getting water, bullets, and food from wherever, buying it on the open market and then delivering it or creating it oneself in factories and delivering it was beyond them, apparently. Like that was that was the far more than airstrikes. It was that for whatever reason, corruption, greed, I don't think incompetence. I mean, like it, 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 what are the odds that every logistician in the Afghan military was actually an incompetent person? You know, <laughs> they've got to be they've got to be long odds there. But, but so much of that comes, I, I don't know if that's a trust thing or a culture thing, or uh, what, what is it about the, the, your, your American logistician who has his own or her own distinct personality, who gets in a truck and is proud to deliver the thing from point A to point B that, that they don't have, or if it's not them, you know, maybe it's the, maybe it is corruption. Maybe it's at the top. Maybe it's a, some, somebody just not like, like hoarding that stuff or taking the money and not redistributing it. I absolutely don't want to essentialize about Afghans or Afghan society or anything like that. So, so take this with a caveat. But I think there's a at a, at a real basic level, our logistical operations are embedded in a whole series of ways of understanding and thinking about the world that go much deeper than just getting into a truck and driving stuff from point A to point B. There are concepts of responsibility of authority, of hierarchy, of what exactly it is your job to do that go along with that, that are really deeply embedded in, in, in our cultural structures. More than anything else, that's the kind of thing that's hard to transfer over is because when you put that in a whole other social, cultural, economic, and political context, they're, it's like they're not necessarily looking at that the same way. So if you have transactions between group A and group B, those may not just be financial transactions or market transactions. There may be there may be um, trust or gain that goes along with those, and we can we kind of put those under the purview of corruption um, because it looks like corruption to us. In other parts of the world, like that's just how business is done. Is there's a little palm greasing that has to go along. A person has an official position and they expect to be financially remunerated for it. And that's the expectation in a way that we just have an idea that somebody can it can be somebody's job to move something from point A to point B. They draw a paycheck for that. That's their job. They sign at one end, they sign at the other end, and this and the troops get their water and they get their bullets. But that expectation in itself is really culturally contingent for us. 
So that's something that I keep coming back to. And and with the Afghan and with with the, the the military in Afghanistan, it's it's the same deal. It's like you can teach somebody how to shoot, but the whole structure that gets the bullets from point A to point B that tells people that it's in their interest to be a participant in this broader thing and do their specific job in this specific way because they grasp the gro- the broader purpose of it. That's much harder to do. And I don't think it's this is necessarily like a pre-modern versus modern thing either. I think it's just that transactions can be embedded in a much different cultural framework than than just the one that we're used to that's very straightforwardly market driven um and and that i think that's probably a contributing factor in a world of patchwork localities personal alliances group relationships that are embedded in material frameworks right so like the exchange of goods can be embedded in how your group relates to another one or your relationship to another person that's not just about the monetary value of those things it may not just be as simple as driving a truck from point a to point b because well you know, what if this is what if this is going to piss off somebody who's going to be angry at my family back home for this? And suddenly that's a in in economic terms, that is a cost associated with doing it. That's not just about the money. And so, I mean, I think there's lots of things like that that, that have to be taken into account when we try to understand precisely what happened here. And but that's also the you know, it's a logic all its own in the same way that, you know, somebody like Gertz von Berlickingen had his own idea of what soldiering and warfare was. Um, you know, the even the idea of what war and conflict are is is to some extent culturally contingent. That's one of the most brilliant things about the Verge too. I mean, outside of Afghanistan, about your argument, essentially, that what it kept on coming back to me was this, in this period, we see these deep systems of capital exchange taking hold and um, kind of starting to flourish. There's a couple of lines in there, like this is a story of capital and like the exchange of capital. Thinking about how old that history is and rethinking for me, it's kind of funny because I teach this period. I'm, I'm more of an arts guy. So I'm always like, look at this painting. It's about painting. And like, like no, it's about capital and bloodshed. Uh, and it's a fun, not a fun, but it's an it's a important way to rethink how these things came to be. And um, yeah, it's the deep history of structural, uh, what makes capitalism work, what makes these exchanges possible the way that our systems do. And yeah, I can't speak for Afghanistan, but it, you can see how difficult it was during this period and so long ago, it, it, it's striking to push that on anybody and say, yeah, figure it out quickly and miss that kind of deep glacier like underneath. I mean, I appreciate that. And you can see that there are a lot of points in time in this period where it's hard for people to make these transitions, right? That like, I don't know that 1490 to 1530 is necessarily the period that I would say where, yes, absolutely, we're doing capitalism now. Every, we're, but I definitely think it marks a tipping point in terms of the influence of capital and the influence of capitalists in the sense of people who have an idea of productively using resources in the specific way that we associate with with capitalism, that those those people got a lot more important in this period. And they started to wield a lot more power and their assumptions about how the world was supposed to work were much more accepted and, and grew much more widespread. And But you can see like all over the place, there are people who don't grasp that same logic, who don't necessarily agree that that's how things are supposed to work. And they got a rough time with it when they're forced into that. There's a there's a chapter in the book about uh, an English wool merchant named John Heritage. Uh, and I forgive me, if, I, I know that wool is not necessarily the most exciting thing in the world, uh, but John Heritage gets his start as kind of a mid to upper level wool merchant by kicking a bunch of peasants off their land. 
by ending the leases that they've held for generations in order to turn this land into more profitable pasture for sheep. Right. That's a it's a more profitable use of the land for him and for the landlord. And it just so happens that 50, 60 peasants get kicked off this this nice patch of land that they and their descent, their ancestors have been on for a long time. And that's it, it's not an easy transition. There were assumptions about the nature of profitability and the, the best use of this land that were counter to their understanding that they had a right to the land, that they had been there for a long time, that this was that this in some way, shape or form, even if they were just leaseholders, that they had a connection to it and that that was meaningful. That's a really big, deep shift. And even then, those were still people who were embedded more broadly in a world where that was possible to try to just impose a, new, uh, a whole new sense for how transactions are supposed to work and how relation the relationships that go along with those are supposed to work is is really hard and really difficult. And I think be- just because we live in a 21st century hyper-capitalist world where everything is monetized and every transaction, um, you can you can track it on an app, the idea that, that that might not be how everything works or has to work is very difficult. I feel like that's part of the story of Afghanistan is that like, it's not just a, you can't just like impose this structure of paying wages for X work um, and expecting everything else to follow from that. There's a big piece to that. The, it's not just the money or the guns or the or the ways of fighting that there's this much broader kind of it's all of that is a product of this much broader social and cultural structure that's, under, that's buried underneath it. I've been furiously reading the Washington Post and the New York Times and the AP and, and Wall Street Journal. I've read so many of these articles in the last week, it's hard to, they're, they're starting to blend together. One article mentioned almost as a throwaway that surrendering Afghan soldiers had been given pocket change, had been given money essentially by the Taliban so they could get back to their villages because they hadn't been paid in months. And seeing that and thinking about it, you're right, it's, we're looking at their military. And I, was, I always tried to be very sensitive to, to the, the, the fact that they were in a different culture, in a different context, and I was there to help them. And I would do things to assist them to do things that we knew were successful, but that was always a means to an end. The end was themselves being self-sufficient, not them doing things my way. When you look, when you take a step back, like you're saying, with relationships, uh, see, seeing an economy that is, or a culture, that's organized very, very differently from our own, then you do begin to have this sense that like you're at the edge of an abyss or something, you know, that like, yeah, hey, the reason these guys didn't come here in violation of their contract is there was some hidden cost to that or to their family or to whatever else. That doesn't mean they're dishonorable. It doesn't mean they're uh, bad people. But in the context of the military, of course, hey, look, it all comes down to the watch. You said you you gave me your word you're going to be here at this time. And so now you have a new problem that comes out of it. And I do think that, you know, our military was probably like on a certain level, like terribly, terribly equipped to, to stand up a, a, a military like the ANSF and maybe like the, the, the parts of our military that were best for that, like special operations, the CIA, because they do this all the time and presumably they encounter these types of challenges, uh, you know, in the beginning, you know, 2003, they got yanked out to, to Iraq, most of them, to, to, to do that mission, which is a different mission. And then, you know, since that time, they've, they've really shifted more toward 
it's not a mission they were you know all that interested in they wanted to do delta force uh you know cool guy hvt snatch and grab high profile stuff and and i know that i don't want to i don't mean to trivialize that because it's it's difficult to do that it's extremely difficult to go in with 12 you know deltas or seals or what have you um, against 30 or 40 taliban who are expecting you like that's a hard hard thing to do and they're going after some criminal but those are the people for the most part who you know who had this type of expertise this type of knowledge special forces they were doing this other thing and so you know national guard units from arizona were getting activated to go train a totally different culture and how to fight and so maybe maybe that is a big part of why the ANSF haven't fought the way we hope. Yeah, I I think you've got it something really important there, which is historicizing the length of the conflict and the paths not taken a long time ago, um, which is something I've been thinking about a lot is the kind of the sense in which it feels like we're living in this eternal present and rather than having a sense for the contingency of the past two decades, right? That like 20 years is a pretty long time. Um, you know, 18 years since the invasion of Iraq is a long time. And that there were things that we could have done a long time ago that, that might have made a difference at that point. Um, and that we should be going back and thinking about some of those decisions that were made then, the reasons for them and the long-term effects of those. Because right now, I think... Um, it's really easy to slip into a kind of an, a, like a, a nihilism about the whole thing that like it was doomed to fail from the beginning, that this was always a bad idea. And like, I'm not going to say that like it was that, you know, if we're going back 20 years, it's like the, if we had done, if we had only done X, Y, and Z things, you know, Afghanistan in 2021 would, would be, would have been what some people are calling a success. I'm not saying that, but I, but I do think in some way, looking back and just and just calling Afghanistan like, oh, it's the graveyard of empires. Of course, this was going to happen. It it removes responsibility for the for the actual decisions that that real concrete people have made over the decades. And the one that you're pointing to to there about who had the expertise to do that job right, I think that's a really key one. If you if you were going back in time and trying to imagine what would a successful uh, mission in Afghanistan have looked like, that having people liaising who were perfectly prepared for for the concept that this is a much different world these people do things much differently and we need to understand those baseline ways of doing things and then slotting our mission into that is that's a much different approach than we're here to train the Afghan army here's what we're going to do here's the money here's the guns and so on and, and so it's about a matter of kind of what are your starting assumptions about the nature of the about the nature of the world that you're dealing with that if if we taken a step back then yeah maybe things might have been different yeah i i like that and and another thing just the, again for the verge is very good about hitting those contingent moments i i mean you have that deep structuralism we talked about but like you said it's the blend of the the two like we have the it's not the great man histories but you still have individuals making decisions within these structures and choices that were made in afghanistan um over the last 20 years uh had a role, it wasn't just going to happen this way. Something I was thinking about too is this, and this, I don't know, this might sound flippant about what's happening, but reading The Verge while it's happening is striking like how many reading these leaders or these different uh, kingdoms, um, they made war for a living, right? They made war, that was, and then they lost wars for the, the number of lost conflicts was striking. Like it was just normal, like we lost that one. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll come back two, three years later, no big deal. Um, and it feels like we're talking a completely different discourse about war, like when we talk about we've lost, I mean, and not to say one's right or wrong, and, but it's just striking the 
difference in how we, um, and maybe if you lived in that moment, it wouldn't have been so cavalier about it. And if you're not the one, the mercenary fighting it and versus the one enduring the war. That's a, that's a really, really fascinating point. And I think I'm kind of going off the top of my head here, but I think it's an extent to which we're still living in a world defined by the memory of World War One and World War Two, which were absolute total conflicts, right? There was you, you win or you lose your way of life and the, and the face of the globe changes, right? In some incredibly deep and profound way. And that's the same logic that went along with the Cold War, right? They, either you win the Cold War or your way of life goes away. And so these are deeply ideological and material conflicts in the sense that they are involving everybody in, in society on a, on a massive scale. They're, they are mass mobilization conflicts and that's true both ideologically and materially. I don't think we're necessarily out of that mindset yet. The idea that uh, a war that we're fighting is um, somehow a massive reflection on the state, uh, the state's ability to do what it says it's going to do as a whole and a reflection on, I guess, national honor is one it is a term. I don't know that it's a good one, but like that somehow the, you know, the aggregate of these things is a reflection of everything that a nation is good for. Um, and so when when you're talking about the idea of losing a war as being kind of a normal thing in the Middle Ages, it's like, yeah, I mean, because they always knew there was going to be a next one. And, uh, you know, in the 21st century, you know, I kind of wonder if we're just moving into a space where there are more relatively smaller conflicts. And so maybe people will stop treating the one as necessarily a reflection on the other. I don't know the answer to that, but I think there's an extent to which kind of a lower level of consistent warfare changes the stakes and the understanding of what the conflict is. Um, and, you know, this is something that I thought about a lot in in The Verge, in, that, in, in the chapter on Gertz, where... There was no division in Goetz's mind between being on a being on a big campaign and being on a small one, because it was always the same mechanisms. It was always the same thing. Somebody would come and say, I need this many soldiers to go fight this many thing. And this is how this is how much you're going to get paid. This is how many guys we need. This is what we want them to do. It was the bigger conflicts were just scaled up versions of that, those same mechanisms. And Goetz was always down for for one of them regardless. You know, he was and there were a lot of people like that. It's just like, oh, okay, you need me to be here. I'll go here. And whether the war was won or lost was less important than the fact that that was just his job and that's what he was going to do. And okay, great. As long as I get paid um, and, you know, people people respect the fact that I'm a fighter for a living, then then off we go. And that's fine. And so I don't know, maybe you guys can speak to that more. Is there do you think am I totally off base with that? It's funny to me because like and this is an observation people made before. But I mean, this last week I've, I've been traveling through Texas and not one person I met, not one person I engaged with or saw any news and any kind of fashion form radio on the side mentioned Afghanistan doesn't exist. Like there was no one, I didn't come across it once this week. And I went to a lot of different places like over throughout Texas anyways. And and funny, like you, Adrian said, you spent this week like looking at the Washington Post, right? Are we looking and um, we come from that background and have been part of that institution. And is striking reading the verge while I'm out in Texas and like thinking about that. Like you, yeah, like no one seemed, I'm sure they're, they're probably having private conversations that I missed, but no one seemed like honor was at stake in the same way that having, I guess, been associated with the military. Um, it, it plays into, we kind of still think along those lines and you have to wonder too. I mean, of course, and again, I've been out for a long while at this point, but I mean, yeah, the, the repetitive deployments, the staying in you go, and you're engaging all over the world at this point at different countries 
whether or not you're winning or losing is important. It's whether you do your job well, right? You soldier well or whatever you're, and, I, but we're still, I've always feel like, like you were saying earlier, Patrick, we're stuck between two discourses, you know, like this older way of like World War One, World War Two, Cold War, and we still speak that way. But yeah, we, we've transitioned to something closer to, or maybe are moving towards this, what we see has been long part of history, you know, um, these kind of more, not client state wars, but just constant state of warfare for a um, warring class. Yeah, I would agree as well, absolutely. That um, it, certainly to your point about living in the memory of World War I and World War II, but also more broadly that, yeah, when you look at the missions recently, like one of, one of the longstanding critiques of, of Afghanistan, I've made it myself, Afghanistan, the, the conflict rather than the country. Very few critiques of Afghanistan, the country, a country apparently I don't understand at all. So I, I have no basis for making a critique is that there was no discernible mission for many years or the mission changed or like the metrics changed. You couldn't measure success in any useful way. So we started measuring the things that we were doing and, we, and then we said that we were you know, succeeding at the things that we were doing rather than building up to some type of measurable goal. And then one day we withdrew as we had to. And I, I'm, I'm still in favor of the withdrawal. I really wish it had been handled differently. I'm not sure it could have been handled differently. I'm certainly not a counter uh, factual historian. Um, I'm just relieved that, that we are withdrawing, especially given all of this. Uh, but although my heart is breaking for the Afghans and, and I, there are people, I, I know a person who's on the airport, at the airport right now, waiting for a flight. So I hope they, they get their flight. If you don't have a clear mission, then you can't actually lose a war. And that's the other side of it too, is that you see people on social media saying, oh, America got beaten. How did America get beaten? It went into Afghanistan and now it's out of Afghanistan. It's not in Afghanistan anymore, but it didn't not make its objectives because its two objectives were defeat the Taliban in 2001 and kill Osama bin Laden. Those were both achieved. And then there was no reach objective. So we were just there. We didn't leave sort of somewhat foolishly. And, and the other thought that I have with that observation, Patrick, is you know, with World War I and World War II, the stakes got raised so high with those. And I think you know, the Cold War was probably in, in part a reaction to that because people, like you were saying, the memory of World War I and World War II, if you fight a war, it's for everything. If you fight a war, you're gonna probably stop speaking your language and your way of government is gonna go away and turn into something else if you lose. So the stakes are that high and probably like over a hundred million people will die. So it's, it's on, on an ethical level, it's, it's truly, it's not just the armies fighting each other. It's not some, the whim of a king uh, and the people who tend to, to show up for that war for honor or for money, it's, it's everybody is involved. And, and on, if, if you're fighting wars on those terms, they can't be small wars. Um, and the objective has to be unconditional surrender. There's no room for a conditional surrender. It's something that it never ceases to fascinate me about Afghanistan and what we've done there is, is yeah, exactly what you pointed to, the, the extent to which it never seemed all that clear as to precisely what, we're, what we were doing there after a certain point and the way in which that allowed for the situation to get to the point where it is today, right? The, if if you had had a clear idea of here's what the goal is, here's what we're going to do, then the withdrawal doesn't have to be something that's that's panicky and carried out like this. And I don't think that like there's a tendency to be glib 
right, about for for people who saw this coming, maybe saw this coming for quite some time, there's a tendency to be glib about it. And it's like there's an incredible human cost to what's happening there now and what's going to happen there over the coming months, years, decades, right? Like it's it's bad. And like the fact that it probably would have been bad regardless of when it happened doesn't make that any less poignant or important to understand in the moment. But the flip side to that is it was always going to be bad. This is one of those things where there's no like neat or easy way of of summing it up and saying like, well, OK, if we'd only done this, if we'd only stayed a little bit longer, that there's no easy answer for it, that that's, you know, in the grand context of like adv military adventurism over the past couple of centuries, it's the uncertainty and the lack of a clear answer more than it is the actual happenings that are so hard for a nation or a foreign policy class or a military to deal with. It's that ambiguity that rather than it having been a final defeat or something or, or some kind of easy narrative capstone from which you could draw a lesson it's this just kind of rolling series of bad things that happen and they are bad like that's you know i i yeah again i mean not to be not to be flippant or anything like that it's just like yeah this is this is all really bad stuff and it's going to get worse and the headlines that come out of afghanistan in the coming months are going to be really bad but it's it's the peak of hubris to think that if only we had done x thing that that we could have forestalled that forever that this didn't need to happen or it wasn't destined to happen maybe not but we don't know that we can't know that you know, something else that you said earlier um about how history is made had me thinking that it's um it's going to be interesting to see if if the taliban can hold on to power and this is pure conjecture you know looking back on things assuming they hold on to power as long as say iran has held on to power the iranian revolution has lasted you know, will they be looking back? Will, will, will people be learning 40 or 50 years from now about how Osama bin Laden like was in Al Qaeda and he helped the Taliban and then the Americans killed him, but his vision like succeeded in unifying Afghanistan. Like what's the, what's the story people are gonna tell now that it's this other different narrative? That's a really fascinating question. It strikes me that, you know, when we're, when we're thinking about what, what is the Taliban or what is it going to be, um, you know, the the revolution in Iran had, there were state structures in place there. They were not necessarily really well-developed ones. They were full of bad actors, but the state structures were, were present. That was a thing that they could, that they could build on. There were institutional blueprints and frameworks there. So whatever form of government the Taliban is going to take in Afghanistan, I think is going to look it's going to be its own thing. It's going to be its own specific Afghan. If it's going to work and it's going to endure, it's going to be something that fits and melds with the character of local societies in Afghanistan, right? Like the, the Taliban, I, and I think this is their great advantage in this whole thing has been that they understand that local context and the regional context and who the players are in a way that whether it was the Soviets in the in the late 70s and early 80s or us now that in, they, we can't understand that in the same way. And, you know, you said earlier that like, well, you know, maybe I never understood Afghanistan. And it's like we can't. And if we were ever going to understand Afghanistan, starting from the assumption that we don't know, that would have to be the way that it works. Right. The, to say, OK, I don't know how this works. I don't know what these people's assumptions are. I don't know how that fits with what I'm trying to do here. Like coming in with that expectation, I think, is what makes the difference. You know, that's that's at least that's my perspective on it. And I mean, I think the the Taliban, because they didn't have to ask those questions, has always had that leg up.
in a conflict where it's not a straight military conflict. It's actually more about cultivating popular support, or at least not popular hatred, as the government that we supported in Afghanistan seems to have done over the years, because people, the majority of people went to the Taliban when offered the chance. Not everybody. And as you said, it's going to be awful for, for the people who, it'll be awful for some of the people who went to the Taliban, and it'll be even worse for the people who didn't want to. Uh, and it won't be too pleasant for the people who did want the Taliban uh, or who had never experienced them. And one more plug for The Verge. It, it just, it does such a nice job of talking about that doubleness. Like, like you were saying, I mean, in terms of it's going to be bad that way, it's going to be bad that way. And you can't read this history now or the history back then and say like, oh, that's the good way and simplify it and or like vote for one side in that same way. And I like you as a historian, and I've been thinking a lot about history in this road trip through Texas, just and your kind of insistence that we have to record, you're talking about the cost, they use the word cost a lot, like towards the end, and but the cost of the bloodshed and your reliance on personal narrative and the way that you come to those local contexts and kind of pull it back to the, these things happen, these, there's the bad and the bad, but there's still people there and you're telling their story and recording that and making that live and like that commitment I admire. And so I just think that's, great and it comes across on the verge really well oh i sincerely appreciate that that means a lot to me all i want and um i mean i th and i'm thinking about this in the context of afghanistan too is that like just you know there's just people they're real people they're living real lives they have they have feelings and hopes and dreams and aspirations it strikes me that one of the things that gets lost in the in headline like newspaper headlines or you know the idea that afghanistan has fallen to the taliban is that that's not that's not one thing, right? That's not a single event. That is thousands and thousands and thousands of small things that are happening, each of which involve people. Um, people who are going to materially gain from this, people who are going to lose from it, people who are going to lose their lives, people who are going to lose their way of life, their aspirations, their hopes, and their dreams. And it's just like, the world makes a lot more sense when you force yourself to think of big events in terms of small stories and, and, and people. Um, who go into them. I mean, I read a, so I read a book recently. It was uh, The Unwomanly Face of War. It was a collection of, um, mem it was a collection of uh, basically an oral history of Soviet women in World War II. And, you know, all of whom, or almost all of whom felt like they were engaged in this grand endeavor to, you know, to fight for the motherland and that they had, most of them had gone to it very willingly or even enthusiastically. But that whole grand endeavor was made up of all of their tiny, horrifying stories. And that that's the and to me, that's the nature of history is that we we can call these things whatever we want. We can put these big grand terms on them or, or even, you know, today we'll, we'll talk we'll talk about the fall of Kabul. Right. Like, but that's not one thing. That's a lot of things for a lot of people who experienced it in their own particular ways, some of which we can recover, some of which we can't. And that that's the way for us to understand the world, that's the way for us to understand the past is is through the aggregate of those little stories rather than imposing the kind of top-down sense based on a label we have for the event or the process. Um, if there's anything I can I can try and get forward, I think it's that. And you know, that when you look at it in those terms, it does make a lot of history look like a tragedy. And it looks it makes a lot of the present look like a tragedy. And maybe Maybe the world, maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe it's important to come to terms with that. I, I I was like, I'm struck because like 
right at the start of the pandemic, when my kids started spending a lot of time at home, I was trying to explain to my son, like what I do for a living. He, he had just turned, or he was like three and a half at the time. And he's like, well, I, and I'm like, well, I tell stories. He's like, uh, are they happy stories or sad stories? I'm like, well, I think they're kind of sad. I, I think a lot of them are sad stories. He's like, are they, are the, these people, are they good guys or bad guys? He was very into good guys and bad guys. I'm like, well, I think a lot of them are kind of bad guys. And he, he turns and he says, daddy's job is to tell sad stories about bad people. And, um, and I think to an extent, like that's a lot of what the job of the historian is, is to kind of stand there and be like a doomsayer and, and be, and just to be a reminder that like whatever stories we want to tell about good things that have happened in progress, there's always, um, that other side of it. And, you know, in, in half a century to your point, like when the, if, what kind of, if the Taliban exists then and is the governing uh, body of Afghanistan, the kind of story that they'll tell about that will also probably leave out the people who suffered and, and died um, and paid the price in, in this particular stretch of months and days and years. So I really appreciate all the hard work you have in, in being that, that voice, you know, because it is, it's hard. It's hard to be that and be insistent to have that memory for those people. So thank you. If you weren't listening to the Tides of History, if you haven't heard the Fall of Rome podcast, you need to. And if you are, buy and read a copy of The Verge. Patrick, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Mm-hmm.